Good morning, friends. Today's message is called, Keep Your Eye on the Donut and Not on the Hole. And my text is Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. And as you may know from listening to last week, uh, we're going to be teaching uh, the book of Philippians when we're back down at Hunt Prison in Baton Rouge and Angola Prison um, later in the month of February. And I am just going to kind of walk you through this book uh, much the same way that we'll be doing part of this with the guys down there. Now, in my many years of ministry, I've been asked this question many times. The question is, what do I do now? Well, fortunately, I had a good friend a long time ago who shared a simple saying that just contains a great big truth. When hard times come, difficult times come, keep your eye on the donut and not on the hole. I'll think about that. Most of you know what a donut is. I mean, a donut has two parts, the the fried dough and the hole. Uh, you've got a choice of which one will attract your attention. You can either focus on what you've got or you can focus on what you lack. See, your perspective in times of difficulty make all the difference. Our reading for today tells us how Paul responded to a difficult experience in his own life. And today I just want to share four perspectives on adversity that I think will help you focus on what you have and not what you lack. Now, first of all, adversity opens new doors for the gospel. Listen to what what Paul says in verses 12 and 13. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Now, the word advanced in that verse is a military term that refers to the movement of an army into enemy territory. As soldiers move forward, they clear obstacles, they open roads, they drain swamps, they build bridges so that the whole army can advance unhindered. Now, Paul means to say that his imprisonment, which seemed to be a setback, served to advance the gospel in Rome. Now, think for a moment about the long chain of events that led to this moment. It starts way back in Acts chapter 21, when he went to Jerusalem to make an offering to the temple in the temple. Now, unfounded rumors spread that he had brought a Gentile into the sacred courts. That led to a mob scene where Paul was severely beaten and would have been murdered if authorities had not stepped in and arrested him. Well, eventually, he was sent to Caesarea to stand trial as a Roman citizen, and there he was held without bail for two years. Meanwhile, he gave his testimony to Felix, the Roman governor, who listened attentively and then kept Paul in confinement hoping that Paul would bribe him. Now, still later, he testified in chains before King Agrippa, and eventually he was put on a boat with other prisoners and sent to Rome. But the boat never made it. It foundered and eventually sunk during a violent storm on the Mediterranean. Paul and other survivors were washed up on the shores of Malta where a poisonous snake came out of the fire and bit him, and he was brought in chains to Rome where he was kept under house arrest for two years awaiting trial before Caesar. And meanwhile, his opponents spread rumors about him, attempting to destroy his reputation and ruin his ministry. That's the background of Paul's statement in verse 13, what has happened to me. So as he's looking back, he sees clearly that everything happened for a divinely ordained purpose. The false rumors, the riot, the beatings, the arrest, four years of confinement, the public misunderstanding, the ruining of his reputation... I mean, slander and accusations against his name, this shipwreck, the snake bite, the house arrest, and all of it now is clearly seen as 
part of God's plan to bring him to Rome at precisely this moment, in precisely this situation, so that he would be exactly where God wanted him to be. Now, as a Christ follower, Paul had a high view of the providence of God. That's the belief that God is in charge of everything that happens to us, the good, the bad, the positive, the negative, and that in some way unknown to us, he orders all things, including our own free choices, so that what happens to us is for our good and his glory. Now, this doctrine is easier to believe when things are going well, when our health is good or our family together, a career moving forward, we've got money to pay the bills, we've got a good church and stuff like that. But if something else it's something else to say that you believe in God's providence <clears throat> when your health is bad, your uh, marriage is failing, your family is blown apart, or your career is you know, going down the tubes and your friends have bailed. I mean, that's when you discover what you truly believe. I mean, how could Paul look at his circumstances in such a positive light? After all, being chained to a soldier in a Roman jail is normally not a good career move. Now, but here's the answer. Paul judged everything by kingdom priorities. I find it fascinating that he didn't mention his own circumstances or complain about his imprisonment. It's as if it doesn't matter at all. The only thing he cares about is that the gospel is preached and that people come to Jesus. And since Paul lived solely for the kingdom, he could find something good even in jail in Rome. Uh, surely God must have sent him there for a purpose. He'd find that purpose and he'd rejoice in it. See, he found that purpose at the other end of the chain. Paul was being guarded by members of the elite Praetorian guards. And these were highly trained soldiers that served as a kind of a cross between the secret service for the Caesars and the army special forces. They were created by Caesar Augustus some 70 years earlier. And in Paul's day, there were about 9,000 of them. They were paid double the normal wage and served for 12 years, after which most of them retired in and around Rome. And over time, they became a powerful political force, putting forth nominees for the Roman Senate. Now, all this meant that the Praetorian Guards were one of the most important groups in ancient Rome. How would Paul reach them with the gospel? It wouldn't work to rent a hall and have a Rome for Christ's crusade. I mean, who wanted to hear a Jew from Tarsus talk about some man named Jesus? But God wanted to reach the Praetorian Guard, so he took his best man, had him unjustly arrested, sent him to Rome where he was put in jail, chained to a number of Praetorian Guards 24 hours a day. And since they changed guards every six hours, this meant Paul had a new audience four times a day, 28 times a week, which would mean over 2,900 times in two years. That's why Paul could truthfully say that the news about Jesus had spread throughout the entire palace guard. <clears throat> now, no doubt he had personally witnessed the hundreds, if not thousands of them, during his long days of confinement. Now, I suspect that before too long he wasn't chained to them, they were chained to him. I mean, only God could think of something like that. See, we often see God's hand at work only in retrospect. I don't think Paul had any clear idea during those long months in jail in Caesarea that he'd end up in jail in Rome preaching to the guards. That would only be rebuilt later. That's the same true for all of us. I mean, rarely do we see the big picture while we're going through big problems. God's purposes are generally revealed much later. Our part is to patiently trust God while we wait for better days. Now, one final note on this point. I mean, circumstances are no obstacle to God. I mean, you can be chained and in the will of God. You can be chained and in the will of God and be innocent of all charges. 
Sometimes God puts you in chains because you can reach more people in chains than you could ever in freedom. Now, I'm sure that Paul didn't want to go to jail. He didn't enjoy the experience. But in the middle of everything, he saw God's hand at work in his circumstances, and thus he could rejoice. You see, friends, Jesus is Lord even in prison. He has his people behind bars so that they can spread the gospel. Well, second, adversity encourages bold witness. In verse 14, Paul says, Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. See, courage is contagious. In this case, Paul's courage and chains spread to the believers who watched him witness to the Roman soldiers. And persecution can be productive. I mean, even though Paul was in jail on a trumped-up charge, his incarceration produced the harvest of bold evangelism across the city of Rome. Now, how could how did Paul encourage his fellow believers while he was in prison? I can think of at least four answers. One, he faced his difficulty with joy. Two, he used every opportunity to speak up for Jesus. Three, he demonstrated a complete lack of fear. And four, he refused to complain or blame others. Now, too often we say, I'm waiting for better circumstances. God says, go ahead and speak up. I don't need good circumstances in order to do my work. You see, friends, hard times often gives us fantastic opportunities to share the gospel with others. And third, adversity reveals our true, true friends. Verses 15 to 17, it says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preaches Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. <clears throat> now, no matter how you read them, these verses sound kind of strange to our ears. Paul is talking about two groups of genuine believers in Rome. One group loves him and preaches the gospel with good motives. The other group evidently is jealous of his leadership and took advantage of his imprisonment to divide the body of Christ. Now, it's important to note that whoever these selfish preachers are, they aren't false prophets or apostates. I mean, if they were, Paul could hardly have rejoiced in their preaching. Now, instead, they were true brothers in Christ who nevertheless are using Paul's situation as an open door to advance their own cause. Now, they had the right message, the gospel, but they preached it from wrong or unworthy motives. Their message was good, their motives were bad, and their methods were questionable. Now, perhaps they said things like this. Well, you know how much we love and respect our dear brother Paul. I mean, no one loves him more than we do. However, it seems as if Paul causes trouble wherever he goes. I mean, someone stones him or they arrest him or he has to sneak out of town in the middle of the night. Now, I don't like to mention it, but there are bad rumors about him back in Jerusalem. I personally don't believe him, but we can't reject them out of hand. I mean, it's possible that he's guilty of the charges against him. I mean, he's a wonderful preacher, but he seems to stir up problems everywhere he goes. And frankly, I think it's extremely embarrassing to have an esteemed apostle in jail and in Rome of all places. Perhaps it would be better if Paul had never come to our city. In any case, he can hardly be our spiritual leader while he's in jail. So let's agree to pray for him and ask God to release him and send him somewhere else, preferably a long way from here. <laughs> now that sounds pretty convincing, doesn't it? Especially if you don't know all the facts. And no doubt it broke Paul's heart to know that <clears throat> some of his brothers were using his prison time against him. Couldn't they see how God had opened this door for the gospel? Couldn't they rejoice with him at the progress of the gospel? In any case, he would rest content knowing that he was in God's hands and that he had many friends 
who truly loved him. And adversity does that. It makes clear who your friends are and who they aren't. And fourth, adversity uh, proves our ultimate values. In verse 18, Paul says, But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I continue to rejoice. So here's Paul's conclusion. He chooses to rejoice despite his critics. His only concern is the gospel of Christ. If people preach Christ, it doesn't matter what they say about him. Perhaps you've heard it said that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. That's a good point. For Paul, the main thing is the gospel. He refused to be diverted by lesser issues, such as how certain people felt about him being in jail. Now, on one level, it was an irritation. On another level, it didn't matter at all. That's just how Paul felt. And in the end, whether his fellow believers loved him or hated him didn't matter so long as the gospel was preached. Now, this is an amazing attitude when you consider how easy it is to be bitter against those who mistreat you. How easy to get angry and lash out. I mean, how natural to attack people who attack you. Now, friends, let me ask you this question. Do you believe God can work through people who don't like you? Well, let's make it more personal. Do you think God can speak to you through people who you can't even trust? I mean, is that possible? Can God do that? Can God put you in an office working under a grade A government certified total 100% jerk and then work through that person to direct your life? Well, consider the following key statements. One, God can use bad people to do good things. And two, he can use flawed people to do his will. Now, I know the second statement is true because he routinely uses people like you and me, and we're all flawed in one way or another. There's an important lesson here regarding how we respond to people we don't respect and may not like very much. And think before you react. God may be speaking to you through a very disagreeable or even disreputable person. This also raises a larger question regarding how we relate to other Christians, especially those who aren't in our fellowship or who live in the same denominational silo we do. And as you know, there are hundreds of denominations, and in most denominations there are smaller groups divided by doctrine or practice or history or worship styles and so on. And the same is true of most churches or fellowships that you and I attend. I mean, in every one of them, there are pioneers and there are settlers and newcomers and transients. There's radicals, conservatives, progressives, moderates, just to name a few of the divisions within the walls of your own fellowship. I mean, how should we relate to other believers who don't see things the way we do? Now, here's my response. During my remaining years in the ministry, I want to glorify God by being an example of his love striving to promote true Christian unity among all members of his body. So considering uh, Philippians 1, how should we respond to fellow believers with whom we have a genuine disagreement regarding doctrine or practice? I suggest three principles as being consistent with Paul's attitude in this passage. We should, one, hold our convictions graciously. Two, differ when we must regretfully. And in all things, we should love sincerely. Grace enables us to speak the truth without alienating other brothers and sisters who see things differently. Regret comes from the fact that in a fallen world we'll never see eye to eye with everyone. And, but sincere love helps us build bridges to those with whom we disagree. 
Since adversity comes to all of us sooner or later, the only choice we have is regarding our attitude. Will we look at the donut or will we look at the hole? If we look at what we don't have or what we have lost, we will almost certainly you know, damage our faith. If we look at what we still have, we can find the courage to keep on going. It appears that Paul refused to be mastered by his circumstances, no matter how difficult or personally frustrating they might be. He resolved to see the hand of God at work in every situation. Thus, he could rejoice even while chained to a Roman soldier. So, how can we live more like Paul? By committing ourselves to the truth that God has a hidden purpose for what he allows. And often that purpose will seem well hidden to us. Now remember that Paul couldn't see the big picture until he finally arrived in Rome. Until then, he simply trusted God moment by moment, seizing every opportunity to preach Christ. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.